welcome to This Girl Can, where we chat to wonderful women doing fabulous things in pharma. I'm Liv Nixon, and today I'm talking to Alejandra Betancourt, Global Director of Marketing Operations at Nova Nordisk. Alejandra has travelled all over the world, and her true love affair with pharma started quite appropriately in Paris, where she started initially volunteering hours at a company called Actando, nowadays known as IQVIA. Since those early days, Alejandra hasn't looked back and tells me passionately how working in healthcare allows her to have true meaning in what she does. Alejandra has so much to share around her thoughts on the importance of the industry and how it helps to improve the lives of so many people. So let's get going. Hello there, Alejandra. How are you? Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. I'm good. First to check, am I pronouncing your name right before we get into this? Alejandra. You are actually perfectly. But most people call me Aleja. Aleja. Which is short for Alejandra. Oh, that's beautiful as well. In fact, let's start with that. Tell me, where is that name from? So I was born in Venezuela, actually in Caracas, Venezuela, a long time ago. And I lived there until I was around 18 years old. And then I moved to the U.S. for college and I didn't come back to live in Venezuela since but it's a spanish name it's beautiful it's so you haven't been back to venezuela i have been back but not to live no i used to come to visit for christmas and yeah family holidays and so forth but never to live you've been all over haven't you yeah so i have lived sequentially in san francisco florence italy los angeles miami paris Mexico City, and Copenhagen, where I now live. Wow. Wow. It's amazing. I love Quite a lot of places. Quite a lot of places, yeah. Do you have a favorite? I think that I've loved every place that I live, and I think they all serve the purpose at a particular period in my life. Uh, But I love, I really love Copenhagen. I think the Nordics, Nordic countries have an outlook of life in which the well-being of the whole it's more important of that of the individual. Yeah. And I love that viewpoint. And it also translates beautifully into the company I work with because it's a very Danish company and it's also founded on those principles of the novel artist way. So I have found a way of integrating something that I really love into the country yeah. and into the work that I do and that I think that's fantastic. Oh, that's amazing. So tell me, Alejandra, what led you into healthcare? Tell me a little bit about your story up until now. Okay, so I had I have Two, two different entry points in healthcare. There was a period in between where I wasn't in it. So fresh out of college, I worked in California in Loma Linda University Medical Center in their marketing department. And in a subsequent lead-up startup kind of agency that we created a couple of friends and I to service in particular that, that big account of the Loma Linda Medical Center. And I really got very immersed into the whole medical kind of community and in healthcare and had lots of friends that that were studying in medical school and I really loved it. And then life happened, I moved, I did all kinds of things. And when when I had the opportunity to go back and I had raised my daughter and had the chance of just deciding what I wanted to do, there was an opportunity to move to Paris and start working in with the, the Learning Academy of IMS, that was Colactando, and I, IMS Health, which since has merged into IQV. 
Sure. And uh, I thought it was great because it gave a little bit more meaning to what I was doing in life than just making a, a, a paste up with whatever company seemed to be the most, the closest to my work or had the best benefits or something. Now I finally could make a decision of what was it that the company was doing. And I remember how well, how good it felt when I was working around healthcare of having more meaning to what I was doing and being able to, in the small part, contribute to, to that. So I started working with IMS and training reps around the world and first line managers and racketeers, and then got to see a lot more of what it, what the industry has to offer through a completely different perspective and was hooked. I knew that I was going to continue to work only in this industry and retired in it because it is exactly what I like to But within the industry, I always thought being in, in the vendor side was nice because then like could work with different companies and get like the little bit of the taste of both worlds. But when I did come to Novo, it really changed it completely because then you get a lot closer to the reason why you're really here, which is after all the patients. And that human factor that, that goes beyond everything. And in particular in a company like Novo, where we treat chronic diseases, change that you can make is so significant. It's lifelong diseases, it's lifelong conditions. And what you can do is amazing. And I'm humbled every day to, to be able to, in some part, be involved in this industry and in this journey. So I think you've answered that quite. My next question was going to be, obviously you've, you've explained what led you into healthcare. And then I was going to ask you, what keeps you here? Is that it? Is that, have you summarized yeah. it there for me? It keeps me because at the end of the day, I was once in a workshop in which maybe I don't want to claim this phrase as my own, but somebody mentioned that we are all just people waiting to be patients that all of us at some point will be patient. And I think that we forget a little bit of that, how vulnerable we are, how vulnerable family members are, people that we love. So it keeps me in it to, to understand that there's, it's much more than what I do. So I, what I do within pharma is very limited to the content factory and the content supply chain and very specific, but at the end of the day, what we do as an industry it really helps people out there. You see it every day. We meet the patients and their young kids. And then you see, we just had the hundred year celebration. So there were so many videos of follow-ups of interviews that were made 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And those young kids now are adults and they have had a fruitful, full life. And that was only enabled by, by the work that all of us are doing. Yeah. I, I, it makes me so happy. It keeps me here and I don't want to leave it ever. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. So talk to me about your passion then. What did you, you, I can hear it in your voice, your passion for what you do, but what is your greatest passion in this world then? Talk to me about that. Well, I'm, I'm always envious of people that have one great passion. My husband, for example, loves golf. Loves Everything about golf, can quote it, loves to watch it, loves to play it, can teach your son about it. He knows what he's passionate about. I know people that always knew they wanted to be doctors or lawyers or something. I don't have that one thing that is very specific. I'm very curious. I love 
to, to experiment and to find out and to read and to know what is happening. And I think that in my life, a lot of things have evolved and changed. And though there's an underlining, there's an underlining bit to it all, which is serving others and that I've had since childhood. And it, it had to do with my family working in the public sector and in different areas and being very involved in the community and in the country and in different aspects of it. And he was always told to us that we're very privileged. We have everything, but there are kids or people other ones that don't have it. And I was, of course, growing up in a country in the third world like Venezuela, but that remained with me. So I think I, I am passionate about things that are not very selfish, but they're not very specific. That's a very long and complicated answer, but it's to say that I don't have that one thing. I love to cook, but sometimes I don't. And I love to do these things and sometimes I don't. But I think always keeping myself informed and I am a social being. I thrive around being around people and sharing those. I was just at a conference at Reuters Farm last week and I came so energized. And it wasn't so much about the presentations, but it was about being able to see my colleagues and to talk and to put up face and the behavior to somebody that you have only seen on the screen and then you are there and you are touching and you realize they whack a little funny and they're a person, another human. And that, that keeps me very motivated. It's so true as well, because we've become so used to seeing people on screens now. And then all of a sudden, when you see someone in real life, it makes such a difference. It makes a great difference. And then that moment where you stop just being a professional and you go to get I don't know, chips, and then they don't like this one and they like this one and we like the same type of chocolate. And all of a sudden you, you connect in so many other different levels that I know we, we tried and I mean, I work with digital tools, so we want to say that it, it's part of that interaction and that there's something about that human contact that's still fundamentally important. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I entirely agree. So you touched very briefly in, in sort of one of the initial questions about your daughter. So tell me about when you had your daughter, how that impacted your career at that time. And tell me a little bit, and tell me about your daughter. <laughs> so I have two, two kids, but they were born so far apart. I have a daughter and a son, but they were born so far apart, 18 years apart, that it's almost like I had two only child. We wow. love each other and everything, but I had two single kind of child experiences. And Carmen was born when I was quite young. I was 24, just graduated college. And I was a little bit determined that it wasn't going to affect my life decisions, but it did. It did. Part of that I already told you about. I was, I loved working in healthcare, but when we, when I moved to Miami and whatever that getting a, a job in a company that had the best benefits and the best health care and I could take her to school became a little bit of a more important factor in what I was doing. But there was a big difference between raising my daughter and raising my son. When you're younger, when you're 24 versus when you're 42, the way that you, you feel about life is completely different. And whereas I was so worried about Carmen, but yet also about my career and being able to provide and, and doing that, I spend a lot more time at work than I would have wanted to and worried a little bit less about the, because I thought all I needed to do was to provide and give her all the opportunities and all the things that I had as a child. 
but with time, when I had Lucas, and of course, it's a difficult comparison because I was also in another stage in my life. I was further in my career, but I realized that there's nothing you can give your kids that is more important than your time and your focus and your attention. And I dedicate a lot of time to that. And I think that, again, one of the great things about working at a company like Novo Nordis is that they really are, and also living in the Nordics, is that great balance of work and life. And I feel that I always worried a little bit that when I first got to to Copenhagen, that balance, how can I was used to in the state working till seven, eight o'clock at night and here people leave that four o'clock, the office was empty. Like, how do we get anything done? But you quickly realize that when you have the time to really focus on your family and your life, when you come to work, then you can focus really on work and be very effective. Yeah. And efficient in, in, in less time because you've, you're rested, you're calm, you're doing everything right. So two different experience in that raising of the kids, the younger self, worried, scared, and overly protective. And then the older parent were more of a relaxed, let me just enjoy that. I don't need him to grow too fast. This yeah. is my last kind of chance. It's okay if you don't walk immediately at nine months. <laughs> yeah. My poor daughter, Carmen, she sees me racing Lucas. She sometimes just hangs her head and goes like, why can he do that? And I couldn't ask. Yeah, because I remember. I learned from my mistakes. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> You're providing this. Yeah, exactly. Look, you paved <laughs> the way. <laughs> you paved the way. But yeah, don't be with your kids. Don't try to hurry it. Don't be so eager that they learn how to write and read and do this and all of that. They'll do that in the good time. Once one stage is over, it's over. You've moved into the next one. You cannot put it back. That's so true. It's so true. It's so precious, isn't it? Yeah. So you talk, you were talking then about work-life balance and that's something I'd love to get into a little bit more. And I suppose in particular, you talked about it then in terms of having your children, but what about in the different places you've lived? Obviously living in the Nordics, it really lends itself to that. That. It's been really different in the different environments that I lived in. There's different reasons why it's been so different. Sometimes it's, it's just logistics. In a city like Mexico City, it's very hard to have a good life balance because there's so much traffic is insane. Oh my God. So you spend three hours up to four hours sometimes just in traffic, two in the morning, two in the afternoon, and that is just time that you don't have. In other countries, you spend a lot of, you have at least balance of life. It's just because of the cultural issues in the U.S. I, I think that if you don't work extra hours, it's very hard for it to prove that you're actually contributing. And there was a period in my life, and this wasn't in pharma actually, but it's about the subject that you're telling. There was a period that I worked in a company and it was right when my daughter was at that difficult stage of turning between a tween to a teen and I felt like I really needed to be there for her when she got home from school. That's when you start making stupid decisions if there's no one there to talk it up with or whatever. So I made a conscious effort of leaving the office at right at five o'clock. And for the period of time that I was there, I never got a good raise or good bonuses. And I was always on probation. And, but when I left the company, they had to replace me with two people. And then my boss, ex-boss, just admitted that I had been doing all that work. But I just didn't do that, the socially approved of staying in the office till very late. Um, in Europe, I find that to be a little bit different. I think that is more understood and implied and implicit. And actually, 
it's expected of us and it, as you're a leader in, in some of this company and your people, you have people managing responsibilities. You have to lead by example and not only make sure that you have that balance, but that you also make sure that your employees are also living to that, those expectations. And it's, it has been life-changing for me uh, to see that you can actually balance both and do well on both. Yeah. Do you think it's changed since COVID? I think that the crazy travel changed a lot since COVID. I think the days where you took a long trip for one meeting and then come back, <laughs> which I did a lot. One. Or even short trips. But I lived in Copenhagen. I took lunch meetings in Zurich. So I would take the 6 a.m. flight, have oh. a lunch, try to take three or four meetings just to balance that trip and be back at midnight. And that that's not healthy. That's not healthy way of going if you're doing that two weeks out of the several days for two weeks out of the month. So I think COVID really changed that in which we do have a lot more of consciousness that if you're going to go somewhere, you're going to make it worth the time. Yeah. I still think that it's important that you continue to have a good balance. That's only talking about travel, that you still see people. Yeah. But that you have a good reason for it. I think the ability to work from home that came from COVID and the fact that yes, people could still be productive and yes, you can trust your employees to actually do their work while they're in the office. Is that it was a good thing. I think that we might take it too far. We, we talked before about that human contact and I think it's important. I think it's important for teams to, and I know people say, well, if we're having a workshop or we're having this, I think that it's also important that every so often you get to know your colleagues. Yeah. My daughter. It works in that re in a company that she works remotely. She never is expected to go in. She started working there and she has been working there without ever meeting anyone face to face. And maybe it's because a digital immigrant, I'm old, but I find that shocking. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. I've spent the latter half of my career was purely focused on people working in a remote sales environment. We had teams who never met face to face and then, but then every now and then we'd have a meeting and everybody would be under one roof and you'd go and you'd suddenly recognize how important that was. But you'd, it, it was like you could go through day to day, say, we're just making the best of these, these digital tools that we have. But I do think you're right. I think it needs to be complemented with the occasional face-to-face. To be complimented with an occasional face-to-face because I don't think that there's enough, there's, and I am admittedly a digital immigrant. I still need to print my papers to edit them and something. So for me, that, that coffee break, that walking into down the hallway, chit-chatting about something else, and you can do that. You, know? you can do that a little bit on teams right before the meeting starts or whatever, but it's not the same. It's not the same. No, it's not. Okay, so talk to me, Alejandra, about what success means to you. Success. I, success has so many different meanings for me that I am comfortable in what my task is. If I understand, for me, success is being able to articulate what, what my end goal is and to have at least an idea of the plan to get there. And that's in on everything that, that is like the guiding principle. 
think that people sometimes get over perfectionist about what that should look like or how you should get there. And I think I'm a little bit more lenient about how you achieve success. I just, it is important to understand at least the essence of what you're trying to achieve. And for me, that's very important because there's a lot of factors and you might change direction along your way. But if you know what your North Star is and you have a plan on getting there, I think that's success because that that North Star is always going to change, move, and it, you achieve one thing and then you need to have the other one. And you get a little bit lost in that shuffle of getting there. But if you're leaving, that's project-based. But if you're talking about success in life, it's back to that balance of being happy in your real life, in your family, in your environment, in your home, in your marriage, in your relationship, your friends, and feeling the same, feeling the same at work. That what you're doing for a living has meaning, fulfills you, and it's more than just a paycheck. Yeah. And I think that I think in that regard, if you ask me, I feel like I have a pretty successful life. I, I if I won the lottery tomorrow, I wouldn't change much. That's a pretty good way of articulating exactly. something. Except maybe Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that I don't play the lottery, so first it would be very hard to win it. But if I did, I would still work here because it it's fulfilling. And I don't think and at some point when you have all of your basics covers, it's just about a bigger car and a bigger house and whatever. I'm not that interested in that. I'm interested about how your day today is happy, how you touch other people and make their help them make their life yeah. happier. That that you become that you go from needing to have a mentor and to being a leader yourself, that's a measure of success for me as well, that you're able to give back for those many people that paved the way for you to make it. So not a very concrete answer, but more of a feeling of what I feel success is. So conversely then, talk to me about how, and particularly I suppose with your team at Never Nordisk, how do you navigate failures? So we are very interesting, actually, we have Lars, our CEO, has given us four guiding principles. The first one is about a culture of empowerment, leadership over processes, making the right choices, and time being the ultimate currency. And I feel that those things encourage a lot of permission to fail and be able to learn from it and progress, of course. Control failure. And that's that part about making the right choices, like of saying, let's figure out if this, let's try to innovate. Let's check, let's be very careful that we have a way of measuring and quantifying so that we know if we are in the bad direction, we can adjust. And I think it's pretty much part of the novel artist culture to allow for those failures to happen. I'm pretty new here and I've always lived through this. I don't know if that has been part of the DNA since the very beginning. I don't think so because there's so much emphasis on it right now from leadership and from the people management organization that, that, that it's obviously part of a change, a cultural change that is happening, but it is happening in the right direction. I think in the area that I am in digital engagement, of course, we have to give a lot more freedom for that. And the consequences of failing are less severe yeah. than in other areas of pharma. And so I think that 
you also have to have a little bit of respect of what would be the case. I think as a leader, I think that it's important to, to promote that empowerment, to feel people, to make people feel like they can make their own choices and they can sometimes fail and but have a, a plan on how they're going to recover from that and more importantly, what they have learned. And I think if you are able to have that discussion about what came out of it, what did we learn? What are we not going to do more of? Or what are we going to do more about it? I think it was a, at the end, it's a little bit of a success. Yeah. Because it keeps you forward. It moves you forward. Yeah. But again, I'm privileged that in my area, it's expected that we innovate and it's expected that this, the consequence for it sometimes going a little bit wrong is not as... No, it's difficult if you don't, if you don't do this in other areas, I think that. Yeah, there's not quite so much room for experimentation in, in, in some areas. So on the note of innovation, then talk to me a little bit about what the biggest challenge is for our industry as a whole, really, over the next five years. So I think in, in, in continue to in, engage with our customers in more in, in more relevant ways, at least in the areas where I have the most purview, I think it's an important thing. I think that the thinking beyond the pill, going beyond just the pill and really understanding the patient as a whole and being able to serve them also with digital health and with programs and so forth, a more holistic view. I think converting an industry that has been so focused on one thing into thinking that way from A to Z, because there's departments that think this way and can do it, but moving the whole of the organization, the whole of pharma to think more in those terms. I think it's a difficult, it's a difficult move, but a very necessary one, because if not, there's going to be other players that are going to take that space for us without having all of the years of checks and balances to, to do it in the right way. So what do you think the priority should be then if you were to tackle some of these as these challenges we have in terms of bringing the whole organization? I think the biggest challenge is going to be change management because I think it can be done. There's other industry that, that looks at the consumer as a whole when they're the consumer industries and stuff. I think it's a big mindset shift and that is a hard one to tackle internally and externally. And we have been hiding as an industry behind regulations and behind all kinds of excuses saying that this cannot be done because of this or the other. But at the end of the day, we can't. And other industries, financial industries also heavily regulated and they have significantly the change, the way, change the way they interact yeah. with their customers. And I'm sure we should too. And then of course, like it always happens when we're talking about these in pharma, we also need to pinpoint then who is our customer. Is mm -hmm. it the patient? Is it the HCP? Is there a combination thereof? And how do we tackle that as well? So it's a big thing. I think that we each have to do our part, but I do think that the patient will be better served when you think holistically about their needs and not just about selling a molecule in the form of our injectable or a pill or whatever. Yeah. And I think things like digital health are helping us transform that completely. And well, artists collective devices are a game changer. And I think that the other element besides 
just change management that is going to help us with that change is, is data insights. It's, it's looking at those. We have gone to a world that's fairly digital and that is supposed to just give us an enormous amount of data. So it should flow into our data lakes and then be used to, to gather insights, to, to understand better what we're dealing with and then act on it. And I think that the acting on it, back to the change management, it is one of the missing pieces is just saying, okay, how long are we going to accept the rule of halves? Saying only half are diagnosed and of those only half are treated and only half of those we at some point need to say no, but cannot just give them the, the insulin or whatever. We need to also help them titrate. We also need to help them stay on it and then we need to see what all the life changes need to happen around it and how we can collaborate with other companies that are also providing that. It's really exciting, isn't it? I think when you think about healthcare in those terms, I find it so fascinating and so exciting. Yeah, it is fascinating. And it, and when you go back to who are doing this for the patients, and we have several anthropologists in the teams here that are great at giving us a glimpse of the, of their needs and life in the day of the patient. And when you're privileged enough to witness these, to see these videos and these journals and these things that they're making and understand not just the change that you're making, but all of the different elements that are part of this journey. Because at the end of the day, and I don't know why we keep forgetting these. And that's why I was saying earlier about we're all, good, we're all people waiting to be patients. This is not something that is outside of or remotely. We, we all have an aunt or a daughter or a best friend or a husband who will unfortunately be ill one day and you when you're there in the hospital you realize that there is so much more than that pill that they're given and now that's given them nausea and he's uncomfortable and he's worried and he doesn't understand what he's supposed to do how do we manage that and what is our responsibility as an industry to see that to see that patient to really see him not just their medical condition or it, it is interesting it is very interesting and it's also very humbling to realize that it's us yeah. as well yeah. No, I really like that concept. Like you say, everyone, we're all just waiting to be a patient. It's it's so true. And I think when you talk about that, you can't ignore the importance of collaboration, really. Can you, like you say, looking at other organizations and working together because it's never going to be achieved in a single organization, is it? And, we, and it's funny because when we meet at these, you know, industry events, and we all talk, we all think that we should collaborate. And then we go right back to our little worlds and our little signs and we put our blinders and we continue to work in our little one project and so forth. I don't know what is it going to take. I think that there's many disruptors out there and I think big, I think companies like Google and Amazon even Apple, for that matter, going to give us a run for our money one day. Yeah. Filling in some of the gaps that, that we can't. Yeah. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier about being a mentor when we were talking about success and at one point needing a mentor and then becoming a mentor yourself. Talk to me about, do you have one specific person who you would say has been your biggest support throughout your career? Or have you had? Oh, I've had so many, and I, um, 
not afraid to ask for help, but I've been blessed with so many great leaders and colleagues that have been great inspiration to me. In, in, in different aspects, I have people that have been very fundamental in, in my outlook on, on, on life. I have had some that have been very operational and just, I don't think that, I think that we thrive and we learn from each other. You're never truly just one person. But I think, to be fair, that I have learned the most from, I have learned the most from helping others than from, not to say, not to undermine the, what my mentors and my leaders have given me, but having to teach others, to mentor others is a great way of growing. Having to articulate things that you do naturally without thinking, having to describe it to somebody else to take into their journey of growth makes you understand a lot why you do things and perfect them. And I'll give you an example. I've, I've wandered into selling when I was in the vendor side working for pharma and I was doing really good. I was like, oh, but I never formally understood why. And it was more about stakeholder management. And I guess I've always been very social and have a good ability to speak, but I never really thought about it. And then I had to mentor one of my team members and they wanted to know how I do it. Why am I doing these? Why am I following up that way? They asked so many questions and I had to think, but why did I do that? Why did I, why did I spend my whole meeting just asking questions and listening instead of trying to sell? And I was like, because then you can cater your conversation and understand the pains and then you can come with a better solution. But I had to articulate things that I was doing without thinking which led to a lot of introspection that led to a lot of growth, yeah. which is what I, what obviously what a good mentor does. They don't tell you what to do. They ask you the questions and they, they kind of lead you in the way, but you're, you're also asking the question to yourself. You're also answering it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I thrive from it. It really makes me happy. It yeah. makes me grow. That's such a good point in terms of there's so many things that anyone does in a role that they've become fairly competent at. You do so many things on autopilot. And if to have the power of just somebody sitting there saying, but why? But why? <laughs> it, yeah, I totally hear that. You asked me before, what was my passion? And I said that I was very curious. I think I, I ask a lot of questions. I used to ask a lot of questions in college. And I still ask a lot of questions. I ask a lot of questions to my team and I'm like, this process is delayed, but why, where, how? And a lot of the times the questions lead not very often to answers, but to more questions. But I think that's how you really grow and succeed is by always wondering, well, by just taking that bit question yeah. a little bit, not necessarily in a negative way, but why? Also, why is it working? And we do a lot with the team. We do a lot of debriefing after, you know, after projects. Actually, twice a week we meet and have a stand-up. And it's mostly about to say, oh, where we have an issue, where do we need help? And, and, and that, that question of why am I stuck? Why am I here? How do I make this move forward? Because we, again, we know where our true north is. We know where we're trying to get there, but we don't necessarily have the route completely planned out. 
So that question, that, that constant questioning helps you get there, helps you understand why you're doing it this way. And if that's the right way. So Alejandra, every time I do this podcast, I have one question that I ask that I'm always fascinated to hear. And it's about the movie Sliding Doors. So you've probably heard me ask it before. I'm curious to know, have you had a pivotal moment or perhaps do you even consider that your life would have gone in a completely different direction? And what was that like? Yes, so I did have a pivotal moment. And that's when I went to Paris. My daughter had graduated from high school and was going off to college. And I, for the first time in 18 years, I could make my own decisions. And I moved to Paris and I, and I was supposed to just take a sabbatical and, you know, go to the galleries and the museums and perfect my French and learn how to cook, I don't know, delicious pastries. And I uh, very quickly realized that, that when I had so much time in my hand, I didn't have time to do anything. So <laughs> I wasn't going to any museums. I wasn't going to any galleries. I wasn't doing anything. And I meandered into the offices of where my husband was working, which were the IMS Academy at Tando. And I was just kind of moving around, wondering what they were doing and realized that, A, I love to work. And I, so I cannot take a sabbatical to do nothing. It'd be that I was, I really did love this industry and, and wanted to be part of it in any possible way. And I was wondering yeah. back to sliding doors, I could have continued walking down that boulevard and just actually forced myself to go to the museum or the gallery, but I didn't stop. And I started working and very soon I was volunteering for so many hours that they gave me a job and I, I worked full time. And then I had the time to, of course, go to the galleries and the museums and learn how to cook some of the dishes, perfected my French. But it was that moment in which for so long, I thought I had been working because I had to, and then realized, no, I work because I love to, I love doing what I do. It was that, do I keep walking down this boulevard or do I go into this office and, 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 the office. and see where, how I can help? <laughs> That's amazing. I do love what I'm doing and I'm so happy that I'm doing it. And it's, I mean, it's not just that I love to work. I love to work in something that is meaningful. And this industry allows me to do that. Yeah. What advice do you give to your son and daughter? Do you have common advice for them both or has that changed as we were saying earlier? Yeah, I've given them both some things that are the same advice and some things that have been different. but. I think first and foremost is to always do, always treat others with respect and how you would like to be treated. And I think that is the fundamental principle on how to just go through life. And that has not changed in my advice to Carmen or in what I tell Lucas every day. With Carmen, to be frank, I gave her a lot of advice about how to be successful and focusing on what to do and what to do and so forth. And I think I went a little overboard, overboard with that. <laughs> As I was saying before, I think what I tell Lucas is that he needs to be happy, that, that he doesn't have to worry so much about the outcome of many things. He plays golf and sometimes the round doesn't go the way he wants to and he like beats himself down and I'm like, it's just a game. It's your, your life is happening every day and you, this is your chance to live it. You cannot just let it 
go by worried about the past or the future or something, but what you have right now. So I think that that is mostly that I think that the, the treating others with respect and how you want to be treated, I think is just key to leading a great life. Yeah. Because that will always make you take the right decisions. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Kids are kids. They need to find, they need to find their own wealth. We cannot hover over them forever. They have to. Um, there was one of those times when all of those advice that they give you about raising your kid, there was this one that sounded so, so corny. And I laughed so much about it. It was about giving them roots until they can find their wings. And I made fun of it because like any self-help advice, it's always sounds so corny and easy yeah. to do. But the more you think about it is like as a parent, all you can do is give them the right foundation because eventually they're going to have to fly and soar and find their own place in life. And they just need to have the toolkit yeah. to guide them through that. So if you concentrate on that rather than the actual outcomes of everything, but the foundation of it, I think that then you're doing your best. But we're all human beings and we're flat. We try to do our best for our kids, but we don't always succeed in everything we do. And we make mistakes and we just sometimes have to just admit that yeah, yeah. humans after all. And that's part of the lessons in life as well anyway, isn't it? Making those mistakes. It's... I'm conscious of time and we are fast running out. I do have one more question that I'm not sure how much we'll be able to go into it, but I just I did want to touch on with you any experience you've had with workplace bias or your feelings around workplace bias in general and ways to tackle it. Just a little bit if we can get into your thoughts around that. Yeah. So I'm very privileged to work in Novel Nordics where diversity and inclusion are one of the biggest subjects in, in, in our life culture. And I think that that is a fantastic thing. That has not been the case my whole life. I have been in the room, it's sitting in, in conference rooms in the past in my life where it was me and five men meeting a client and I was the highest ranking person in the room and when the coffee needed to be brought I had five men looking at me going you're the one that is gonna go is gonna go pick it up I had a had living in, in in the U.S. to deal with the fact that I'm Latin American and have an accent and I'm a little not as white as my counterparts being lightly used as you know I had a job where my name had to be Alex because Alejandra was too ethnic. Wow. And my, my, they, they created my business cards and everything said Alex Betancourt. And I, and for the years I worked in that company, I, it, it took me a double take every time they had to say Alex a couple of times because it's not my name. So it takes you a while to get used to answering to a different name. So I have, I think I have come and I, at the beginning full circle from the beginning of the interview, you were saying how it, which is the place that I love living the most. And I think the Nordics is because it's the place where I think that there's the most equality and where that, that can, those things that, that you've have experienced in life about being a woman or being, not being white or having an accent or now older than, I mean, working in digital space, I'm way older than most people there. So there's different levels of bias and I don't experience them. 
because of the country I live in and because of the company I work for. And I think that having experienced it in the past, you appreciate so much more. Yeah. That this is an emphasis and that it is something that is put on us. And the, my biggest regret is that it's not universal, even though this is what Novo Nordis would like in parts you can see as you travel into or Indian affiliate or other affiliates that, that, that culturally in the, not in the company, but in the countries, these things are still sure. in route to improvement. So hopefully it will be faster rather than slower. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's fab. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I don't know where the time's gone. It's just absolutely flown by. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on. It's been a pleasure to hear your story. And that is it for another episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't done so yet and you're enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe or hit follow. It makes a huge difference. You can now also join us as a member where you'll get invited to join recording sessions, regular mentions on the show and discounted or even free tickets to some live events. Find out more, head to patreon.com, thisgirlcam. As always, go to thisgirlcam.com to see this interview in print and to find out who my guest is next week. You can follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook, all under This Girl Cam. Thanks again, everyone. Bye for now. Bye for now.